I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half, half as, as Well, where we promise Tolkien lore half as much as you should like. Explained half as well as you deserve. Okay, we are in the final episode of The Two Towers. Yeah, this is the last little chunk of uh, book four, Frodo and Sam's Journey. And um, yeah, these books are just flying on by. Absolutely. We started with chapter seven, Journey to the Crossroads, and went all the way through chapter 10, The Choices of Master Samwise. I really enjoyed this section. I thought it was a nice little wrap up to this part of the the journey. Mm -hmm. And I'm excited to enter the third book. Yeah, me too. Especially with this section, I think this probably has, even though Tolkien didn't write these books, you know, in volume one, Fellowship, volume two, Two Towers, that was more the publishers. I think the Two Towers has the best climax. Yeah. Um, This whole section to me is just like, it's one of my favorite parts in the whole book. And I also really appreciate the differences between books three and book four. We talked about how book three has a lot of like plot and these like new settings and you know we're going from Fangorn to Helm's Deep to Edoras and Orthanc and all these characters Treebeard, uh, Theoden, Aemir. Right, um, big players in the big chessboard that's, that's yeah at play. And then this book is very just uh, it's very character driven. Yeah. It's very um, slow burn daily yeah. life on the trail. Yeah, it's just about these relationship dynamics between these three characters: right. Gollum, Frodo, and Sam, and. Um, you know, by the end of this, it's all three, the ring bearers. Yeah. And it actually reminds me a lot of book one of Fellowship of the Ring early on in the journey. Yeah. When it's just the hobbits traveling to meet Gandalf and, and set off on their yeah. their initial adventure. They've just kind of swapped Pippin for Gollum. Yeah. You know? <laughs> weird, weird change. But, uh, but yeah. Um, but no, I really like this and I really appreciate the story kind of slowing down the plot to really meditate on these three characters um frodo and his kind of um his wisdom his gentleness his mercy and pity for Gollum, Mm -hmm. and then Gollum and his conflict between helping frodo and this you know his new nice master right who's kind of bringing out you know the smeagol side of him more but he's also cannot let them destroy the ring he's too tied to it yeah, and he doesn't know that that's what they're going to do yet, right? Yeah, but he doesn't want them to go into Mordor with it because right. he's he, been there he's... and he's like, uh, you're probably going to get caught and right, it's going to exactly. be taken from you. And then Sam, who is just totally devoted to his master, but is also through that has become a little spiteful and petty towards Gollum. And yeah. so all three of these personalities are going to come to a head in this chapter or these chapters and... um I think with these chapters, especially the stairs of Kirithungal and Gollum's betrayal, and we'll get to that in a little bit, from here on out to Mount Doom, their fates are kind of locked. This is like the turning point in the story. So yeah, let's get to it. Okay. So they have left Faramir and are setting off towards Kirithungal. Gollum definitely has a plan. He's he's pretty interested in getting them to Kirithungal as quickly as possible. Well, you know, Gollum's been in this land before, like we said, and he had a bad time. Yeah. Um. So, I got to imagine some of Gollum's past negative experiences, his torture at the hands of Sauron, are kind of playing a role in his like, let's go, let's go. We can't linger here. We got to keep moving. I mean, not that Frodo and Sam, I think, need a reminder to know that they're on the borders <laughs> yeah. of Mordor, 
One of the first places they kind of come to is they the woods start to clear out and they look down into this valley and see this road running from Minas Morgul, which is the city of the Ringwraiths, down to Osgiliath, which used to be the old capital of Gondor, mm-hmm. which was set on top of this bridge in the middle of the river Anduin. And now it's this ruined city and Gollum is very much like, we need to avoid that road. And Frodo talks about how he f- almost feels like there are like unseen things on the road. Mm-hmm. And I think we're told elsewhere that Osgiliath has become a, a city of uh, evil spirits. So this is another um, time, I think, where we see some of um, Sauron's necromancy at work, where it's really heavily hinted that we have spirits kind of coming from the city of the Ringwraiths down to inhabit Osgiliath. Like, as, as Sauron's realm has kind of expanded... He's staking his claim on these places and sure. you know, the dead marshes, you know, have these... Filling them with ghosts. <laughs> exactly. So uh, I love this kind of creepy horror aspect. Yeah. And I like that there's just this road that, you know, they can't see anything moving, but like they know there's something on that road. Right. And so they travel a little bit further up and there is an, an, a slightly important part here. Earlier, they, Fairhair had said that everything is quiet in the land. Mm-hmm. And he's right. like, I've never seen it like this quiet. And there's a reason for that, which we'll get to in Return of the King. But then Sam goes to sleep, take a quick little nap, and he wakes up and it's like dark. Right. And it's already like, dark. But it's not really dark. Yeah. It's that there's this growing darkness coming from Mordor. Right. Which will only deepen and continue until there is a change in the wind a few days from now. And so when I've talked a lot about the weather kind of being similar, and you see that across different places, this, what's called the dawnless day, okay. we'll see throughout all of it. As everyone realizes, there's this massive storm coming from Mordor. Right. Sauron's about to make the first stroke in this war. Yeah. Um, and we'll find out why he's doing that now mm-hmm. in the other books. Okay. <laughs> um, but I just but thought... we're just getting hints of that. So like, yeah, put a pin in it for then. Yeah. And I honestly didn't pick up on Faramir talking about, you know, uh, the quietness of uh, the surrounding lands until now. And I was like, oh, that that's why. So right. we'll talk about that um, next episode. I know I say this a lot when we're like getting to these darker chapters where I'm like, oh, we're a long way from the Shire. But I I do think, you know, it's interesting. We start this book series at the beginning with like a huge party in the Shire with all of these happy hobbits. It's like the warmest, Mm -hmm. most liveliest a book could start really. And then right now we're seeing our, our two favorite hobbits sort of in a very chilling and eerie landscape yeah. and heading towards something that, you know, is yeah. is pretty bad. <laughs> I mean, at this point in Middle Earth history, Mordor is probably the closest you can get to hell mm-hmm. itself. And so they're, these two people, they don't want to go, but they have to march pretty much right into the heart of hell. Yeah. And to get there, they have to go through the Valley of Minas Morgul, which is basically the Valley of Death, yeah. <laughs> um, to use like more biblical terms. I think it's also really interesting, you know, we, we've talked about the sort of silent strength of the hobbits and how they're pretty resistant to a lot of the evils of this world. But through this whole section of chapters, it's very clear that the ring is starting to take a massive toll on Frodo. And not just yeah. the ring, but everything he's thinking about. As he gets closer to his goal, it, it, it's clear that the burden is heavier and heavier and he's so tired in this section. And yeah. Sam is just like desperate for like 
Frodo, you need to sleep. Like, you are, yeah. you know, burning the candle at both ends. And I, I think that just struck me. And that's something I think is very clear in the Peter Jackson movies as well. Like, Oh, yeah. You know? I, I almost think they overplayed it a little <laughs> yeah. bit. It's just he becomes like, very fragile yeah. on his journey. And, and, yeah, and I'll say... Yeah, in the movies, I think they played a little earlier on. Yeah, definitely. Um, this one, it really only starts here, and it only gets really bad once they're in Mordor. But yeah, definitely. As they're getting closer to Mordor, that ring is getting heavier. They finally come to the crossroads, where there is an old statue of a king sitting there. These lands were, you know, part of the realm of Gondor. And the head of the king has been knocked off, and a stone with an eye painted on it has been put in its place. Um, and graffiti's been written all over it, um, spoiling the statue. But they notice that uh, the last ray of the sun that day shines on the actual head of the king, which is lying in the grass, Mm. and there's a crown of flowers that are in bloom. So it's kind of amidst all this terrible signs of, you know, Mordor encroaching, we get this glimpse that, like, oh, good days are to come. You know, like, despite all this graffiti and... uh, yeah, it's the ruin the ruin and stuff it's like nature will always come back right. so like you know the the flowers on the crown and you know they say the king has got his crown again definitely they cannot conquer forever um i think it's pretty true to you know tolkien's themes of and just it being something lively growing like new flowers exactly up rather amidst stone and, and yeah. just this like you know if if everything's so silent and deathly <laughs> yeah um that's a good sign. Yeah, it's a really great image, I think, that really kind of, I think, sums up the hope that these people hold on to, even in the face of so much right. death and destruction. It's just like the knowledge that one day this evil will pass and that, right. you know, the day will come again. So I've always liked that a little bit. But then that takes us right into the next chapter, the stairs of Kirith Ungol. Mm-hmm. So now they're marching up this valley on the borders of Mordor, up past uh, Minas Morgul. Which, if you remember, was originally Minas Ithil. It was a Sealdor's tower, his city that he ruled before he left for the north and mm-hmm. was killed. Um, and then at some point, yeah, the Ringwraiths came and they took it over and it became the Witch King's city. And the Palantir that was in that city was taken and became Sauron's. Right. So that's the Palantir that he used to corrupt Sauron with. Um, and this is how Sauron is gathering so much news from around, yeah. information from around. But yeah, it's a really creepy valley. I mean, they say like even the flowers are sickly and give <laughs> off this, uh, you know, smell. And um, the city itself has this green glow. Mm-hmm. And uh, they say like it used to be white. It was the Tower of the Moon, right? And it had this like luminous glow to it. But now it's this uh, really radioactive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, they can almost feel like watchers in the tower. They're like, they know that there's evil here that doesn't sleep. Right. And Frodo's called to it. And he is walking towards it. And Gollum and Sam have to, like, pull him back. Uh, so, again, talking about that burden weighing him down. Yeah. It's, um, it's getting He's just less and hard. less in the physical realm and more yeah. and more in the world of Sauron and, and the Witch Kings, like the necromancers plane (laughs) um it just seems like especially as he's had more run-ins with possible death and like danger he just seems more and more removed um Mm -hmm. you know of course he sustained that first morgul blade wound um and that kind of set him on a course for just not being as attached to this world and yeah uh he's very much a soul caught in between and Mm -hmm. and it's clear that he's being 
torn apart <laughs> from the inside. Yeah, well, I mean, I like that you brought up the Morgul blade because that definitely, we saw immediately, it like, kind of right. affected him uh, when they were like in Moria and stuff. They talked about how his senses were more keen. And now he's literally at Minas Morgul. He's where that knife came from. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. I think it makes a lot of sense that he's actually drawn to this city. Right. Especially because it's like, if he had truly sustained that wound to the full extent and died from it, he would have become... But this would have been his city. A ring race. So, yeah. like, that's where he would have fled to at that point, you know? Exactly. They drag him back, and just in time, uh, to start going up the stairs, mm -hmm. because then the gates open, and an army comes out, marching right. to war. <laughs> um, so it's a good thing Frodo, like, wasn't on that bridge at the time. Right. I, I love this whole scene, the procession of the army of Minas Morgul led by the Witch King, who's just at the head on a horse. Anytime they talk about the Ringwraith, especially the Witch King on his horse, it makes me think of like the uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Right, like totally. death on a yeah. pale horse. I love that imagery. Yeah. Just very striking. Yeah, so I was a little upset that they, uh, even though the Nazgul do ride these fell beasts, in the movies they change it to he's on one of those winged fell beasts. But I think there's something, uh, it's more epic, obviously, but I love the idea of the Witch King just on a regular horse. I, I agree with you because I think something that I had felt from watching the movies, which of course I didn't know until reading, was it, it really felt like the Witch King and the other Ringwraiths are like totally in a different world. Like, even though we can perceive them, it really feels like they exist not in the physical realm this is the same thing that you get with sauron like it's hard to know that sauron has a physical form by watching those movies yeah. you're like just paying attention to the eye which i'm sure we'll talk a lot about more next book but having him like actually ride a horse would have been like oh this is a real tangible guy yeah, <laughs> to well, some extent what i love about the ring race is they're introduced as just black riders right and we don't really we're just like these are weird dudes yeah but then it like, gets more and more unsettling as we yeah. find out oh these are like wraiths right that have been given a form uh through their robes and but now we kind of see him back and i would say that stands for a lot of the ring wraiths too they do seem more not directly grounded in this reality ghosties but like but because the witch king is sauron's right hand right he is more directly physically involved with this especially at this point going forward i don't know where it is in some of the letters though tolkien writes about how you know once he sends the witch king out to war in this case he's like imbued with more power than he was previously right so now he is acting almost as sauron on the battlefield yeah, just one thing I did want to point out, too, is uh, the title, The Two Towers. I think this is a good point to talk about it, because the movies really make it seem like The Two Towers are Orthanc and Barad-dur, Sauron's mm -hmm. Tower. But if you look at Tolkien's original drawing for The Two Towers, you can see on... There's two towers on the cover. Mm -hmm. On the right side, uh, there's a black spiky tower. Underneath it is a white hand, so we know that's Saruman's Tower of Orthanc. Mm -hmm. And on the left, there's a white tower with a crescent moon over it and nine circles that look like nine rings below it. Mm. So the other tower is Minas Morgul because these are where the two armies are coming from. Right. Is Orthanc and Minas Morgul. These are the two fronts of the war. Saruman and the Witch King are the two main lieutenants of this war. And this is where the communication is happening between them as well, correct? Like, or, or 
the Palantirs are from these two towers. Yes. And I'm unsure if the Palantir is still in but like Minas Morgul. Yeah. Originally, but, these would have been towers that would would have communicated. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Back and forth. Back and forth. That's but, interesting, though. Like, I actually never thought I'll have to read more into if the Palantir is still there. Right. Or I, I just always assumed Sauron I, yeah, was no, using it in his I, tower. I agree. I think he probably took yeah, it away from yeah. there. But it's originally from this tower. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah. this and this is what they were used for, is for the kings and the lords of Gondor and Arnor to communicate with each other from their respective places. We'll have to post that picture. Yeah. Yeah, and you can That's even see the, the Nazgul going. This is probably one of my favorite photos. Yeah. Um, now our heroes and Gollum are... Um, marching up the stairs of Kirith Ungol into this pass. Uh, this was what, you know, Gollum's oath was, was to kind of just to get them to this pass. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, and so, they, they dismiss him. Yeah, they're ready to <laughs> let him go. Um, and they're like, you were honorable to your word. And he's like, no, we're going to keep going. Um, he's like, I can't leave you now. <laughs> There's no way. Yeah. And this part, I I love this part on the steps. This is... I think more clear of a turning point in the story than any other before they are going to take the journey to go into the tunnel where they take a little rest and they all eat their last meal together. It is like this very like last supper uh, like thing. And we know Frodo is this very Jesus like character that's about to right. go sacrifice on to do himself. his exactly sacrifice himself to go on his own uh, passion his own crucifixion, essentially. And much like the Last Supper, uh, there is one of you here who will betray me. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I love the religious imagery here with this. And like I said, this story so far has been about these three characters. Now we know enough about them and we're about to reach this turning point in which there's no turning back from. And all their fates are essentially locked on a course for Mount Doom. Which, by the way, Doom in Tolkien's world means fate. It doesn't necessarily mean like doom and gloom and gotcha. evilness well <laughs> um well yeah i mean it is also that yeah, kind of no, like, but own, like but he uses doom like uh like the, so it is doomed the, the so it final is willed. fate yeah the final yeah. end yeah so yeah and honestly the fate of middle earth revolves around these three characters and their interactions with each other and their relationships to the ring too and so while they're sitting around here on the steps sam is talking about all the old tales like Baron and the Silmaril uh, stealing it from Morgoth's crown, right. which is harkening back to one of the major stories of the Silmarillion. And then he remarks that like, oh yeah, and then the Silmaril and then Eärendil sailed with it into the west and then he went up into the sky and then Sam makes this connection like, oh, uh, your file that the Lady Gladriel gave you has some of the light of that star, of yeah. that Silmaril. Yeah. Um, and they had kind of forgotten about it till now. He remarks it like, oh, the story's still going on. So we get this very meta discussion between Sam and Frodo about stories. Right. You know, the people in the story kind of come and go when their part ends. But like when you're in the story, you're not really thinking about that. Mm -hmm. In hearing Sam kind of like, oh, this is, don't worry, Frodo. Like, this is how the stories are going to play out. This is how we'll be in the legends. This is like the first time that Frodo laughs on this yeah. latter part of their journey. He he's yeah, because he's like, so I wonder if down. we'll be put into those tales, right? Exactly. And uh, he's like talking about like, oh, Frodo of you know, um, in the Ring of Doom or whatever. <laughs> yeah. and, and Frodo's like, let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> like, we might not even do this, yeah. but he laughs, and, and it's, it it lightens his spirit greatly. Yeah, and I, well, I love Tolkien's description. It's like as if the uh, the stones are listening to his laughter because yeah. like. 
this place has been devoid of any cheer since like ever right so like when was the last time someone laughed on the borders of mordor right exactly uh i, I always love that uh image and so yeah and they're talking about being the heroes or the villains and sam's wondering he's like i wonder how Gollum sees himself would you like to be the hero or the villain of the story, Gollum? And then they realize Gollum's not there. Right. He's, he's snuck away. He's snuck away. And so they think that, oh, well, maybe he's, um, now that he's done what he said he was going to do, he's left, which is, you know, we relieved him. But what we know is really happening is he's going to see his mistress. Right. Shelob and prepare the way. I'd just like to reiterate before we go into the whole Shelob part, Gollum has sworn an oath that he will not betray Frodo. Frodo, through the ring, has laid the conditions saying that if you do, I would say for you to jump into the lava of Mount Doom. But Gollum also can't betray his precious. Right. Frodo knows what he has to do. However, we've seen even back in the earlier chapters, he couldn't even throw the ring into his own fire. fire. Yeah. So as this ring is getting more powerful and more powerful, how the hell is he going to throw it in Mount Doom? Right. He's not. And then Sam has just always said, like, I know I have something to do. And uh, so he's going to protect Frodo no matter what. And so now we have these three uh, characters kind of on a locked course. And it all kind of comes down to what Gollum decides to do here. And uh, this part, and this is the part that I'm really talking about, is when he comes back and Frodo and Sam are sleeping on the stairs, a change comes over Gollum. Mm Mm-hmm. He sees, like, the peacefulness of Frodo. He knows, oh, he's never been anything but really kind to me. And they say that, you know, Gollum no longer looks like this creature. It's like if they, mm. if the hobbits were awake, they would have just seen a weary old hobbit mm. who was, like, weary of all his pains and stuff. And if you actually go into the Tale of the Years and the appendices to this day, where they're on the stairs, March 11th. It says, Gollum visits Shelob, but seeing Frodo asleep, nearly repents. Mm. Um, And this would have been pretty huge. Tolkien wrote in his letters about an alternate ending, in which case, if Gollum did repent, if the love of Frodo did win out, and he didn't betray him here, what would have happened is eventually when they got to Mount Doom, Frodo still would have been unable to throw the ring in. Right. The desire to take the ring would have overcome Gollum. He still would have bitten his finger off and claimed it. But then having now just been satisfied with the ring, Gollum would have taken one for the team and voluntarily thrown himself into Mount Doom with the ring. Pretty much being the hero of the story. Right. But he, as we know, in this moment, he becomes the villain of the story. And it's really because of Sam. Yeah. Um, yeah, which sucks. Sam wakes up and he sees like he's pawing over him. He's like, "What are you? What are you sneaking off to?" Right. Yeah. What are you doing? Stop touching him. Yeah. And um, Gollum is very hurt by this. He's really like, "I was about to repent and tell you all about this, and but if you're just gonna keep accusing me when I'm trying my best here, I might as well just." Be the evil person you think I am. Yeah, exactly. You see Gollum revert back to his old self almost immediately. And it's so sad to see because he was like literally that close. And But once they go into the tunnel, there's really no going back. And Gollum's betrayal is pretty um, final. 
Yeah, it's interesting, you know, I mean, this is such a clear moment that, I don't know, it it feels very uh, virtuosic as far as, like, we're trying to learn a virtue here about not judging people, you know, with your first impression of them. Or Or at least being open to giving them second chances. Yeah, and, and, and like, allowing them to prove you wrong. And and move past their old mistakes. And Sam's just never been able to do that at all with Gollum. Yeah, and, I mean, it sucks. Like I said, Sam, this is his big flaw right here. Thinking about what this leads into, this almost gets Frodo killed. I would say, talking about, like, that concept on a thematic level throughout the story we've seen other versions of this um, particularly where it comes between Gimli and how he's treated by different elven groups um, and how others respond to that and even like with Frodo doing a very similar thing as Aragorn when he says, like, yes, you can you can blindfold all of us. Yeah, I thought that was a nice touch, too, because it definitely does seem like Frodo was paying attention to Aragorn's leadership definitely. skills in that one. And just being um, like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so I, I think we've seen over and over again throughout the whole story that the idea of judging people uh, based off of their torrid pasts or just prejudice against their, yeah. like kind mm-hmm. um is something very much like frowned upon <laughs> and and that in order to get what you want or in this case like defeat all evil <laughs> it's very necessary for all of the characters to kind of band together and be able to look past their pettier yeah. inclinations yeah i mean this is like i think the common theme of tolkien is these themes of fellowship and pity and mercy and yeah. and allowing for the possibility for everyone to do good right no matter how wretched. Right. And I mean, even the most evil people, through doing their evil, will do good. Yeah. Um, again, that's like the whole theme of this universe was founded on, going back to the Silmarillion. Right. It's all in the eye of Iluvatar. Yeah, it, it all uh, contributes to the greater glory of Iluvatar. Yeah. I mean, not to get too bogged down in movie versus book comparisons, but given that this is one of my favorite parts in the whole book, I cannot stand how this scene is butchered in the movie. Because what happens is Gollum returns, and instead of repenting, he decides to frame Sam for eating all their food. Yeah, I so hate this scene. when Sam wakes up, he accuses him of sneaking and being sneaky because he is being sneaky. Yeah. There's no complexity there of Gollum repenting. Um, Sam is just like, has no flaws. He's just right. Yeah, in, in general, I definitely concur with that that in general the movies portray sam as this like correctly suspicious person and Gollum as just a wretched horrible creature and frodo is kind of clueless in between them which he's definitely not yeah it makes it seem like oh yeah frodo's kind of naive sam is the smart one for not trusting Gollum. um when it's less about being not being smart or dumb but being like a good person or not yeah like how and frodo is the good person and right. almost saves smeagol through his affection absolutely and, and and sam almost ruins it all because it's not that sam's even he's not doing anything of like i don't know how to put this but like consequence that's the wrong way of saying it because obviously his his treatment of Gollum is like has major consequences yeah. but what i mean is like when we just look at the basic actions he's not doing anything actively to Gollum. He's just treating him like shit. Yeah. You know, so I'm not, I'm saying like, he's not like 
physically restraining him. He's not doing anything different on that kind of physical, obvious level compared to Frodo. Um, So it's sort of just like, why not just be a little bit kinder and just be suspicious inside rather than being an absolute asshole to him and well, it's like all the time they've been traveling for like how long so far and like yeah Gollum hasn't really betrayed them or done anything no. wrong he's just yeah. guided them exactly so um again Sam's suspicions of Gollum to me seem to come totally just from his own jealousy and possessiveness over Frodo yeah um, I agree. which is a trait that I think Tolkien wants the reader to recognize is a flaw and is wrong yeah. but in the movies it's just no he's right Gollum's evil yeah. Frodo's an idiot. No. Sam's yeah, the that's, best. That's a, an unfortunate glossing. Yeah. And it's like, I think in the book, it's like, no, Frodo's the best here. Frodo's the one who truly gets it. Um, yeah. Because Frodo doesn't trust Gollum at all. I mean, he just. Yeah. Well, literally. when He like extends the pleasantry of like, I'm not going to be a dick to you. And like, I'm going to generally trust that you're leading us the right way. It's just like Gandalf knew you had a part to play. Um. Gandalf never really led me astray, so I'm going to put my faith in Gandalf. Right, exactly. Um, I absolutely think you're treacherous. And, like, yeah, he's, he's, he, he's almost the most realistic about Gollum. Totally. I I mean, he's experiencing the ring more so than anyone else in the story. So, of course, I, I think beyond just saying, oh, maybe that could be me someday. I've seen Bilbo freak out like that, you know. It's, it's a relatable thing. I think, you know, he's literally wearing the ring. It's probably just, like, such an eye-opener to, like, yeah, it wouldn't take much. It wouldn't take much, like, never mind having the ring for centuries <laughs> in the darkness and, like, that being your world. You know, yeah. it was his world. And I, as the ring bearer, can sense the power coming off of this thing and have felt its, like, allure and pull in these small moments that, yeah, I mean, this, this guy has dealt with it more than anyone other than Sauron, <laughs> you know, like truly Gollum is, is that was something I thought about a lot through this, this set of chapters was just that Gollum had the ring longer than anyone else other than Sauron. Yeah. He's like the second most ring holder yeah <laughs> you know and um we've talked about his sort of for hundreds of years yeah like yeah. his pervasive strength or um resistance. like the, the resistance the persistence of Gollum. you know we we see him at this like treacherous lowly state but when you realize that like he's been contending with a power that literally no one else has survived yeah. for any amount of time and even here like <laughs> we see he nearly repented right yeah um yeah he almost did good still even after all these years of being corrupted by evil right yeah it's pretty amazing i think frodo recognizes that a strength within him right and and acknowledges it yeah so yeah, like we said, Gollum's like, well, I'm not done with you yet. Um, especially now that Sam's just been a total asshole. He's mm-hmm. just like, okay, well, if that's how we're going to play it, then follow me. Let's keep yeah, going. Fuck you. And so he leads them into Shelob's lair and then quickly kind of just disappears. Yep. <laughs> you're, you're on your own. We get a lot more of that good horror with Shelob and her Yeah, eyes. Shelob's pretty spooky. I talked a lot in The Hobbit when they're in Mirkwood and they encounter spiders I, I talked a lot about how I love giant spiders in fiction. And um, I think, you know, it. it's pretty funny. You had mentioned last episode 
the term Kirith Ungol and how Ungol is clearly from Ungolian. Her mother. Her mother, who is also a giant spider demon lady. Primordial monster. Um, And the thing I want to say about Shelob's name is that Lob is a word that means spider. And it's actually used in The Hobbit when... Bilbo is making fun of the giant spiders. Oh, yeah. So Lob is like actually, a, that's, of course, etymologically <laughs> related to spiders. Interesting. And I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but also Gollum calls her she or her. Right. Totally. So, so I mean, it's just like spider. her spider. It's like she wolf, you know, yeah. she spider yeah, um, cool. is her name, basically. It definitely is cool that Tolkien's a big language nerd so you get a lot of little things like that (laughs) definitely but yeah before they even behold like her whole form they in the darkness know that they're just being watched by these eyes that are glistening in the dark and it causes them to flee but then frodo kind of has this moment where he's just like running is no use yeah and he actually goes back to face the eyes uh which I i think this along with frodo resisting and challenging the witch king at the fords of rivendell this is one of i think frodo's most like badass moments <laughs> um and sam is even just like later he's just like oh if the elves could hear that they would have written a song about that <laughs> but yeah i love he like he pulls out sting and he goes down to face the eyes right and uh yeah at one point he pulls out the file of galadriel and uh you know that light Shelob's never seen any light like that in her life kind yeah. of come down into her world. And I think it's very fitting that the light of Arendil, which we just talked about, came from the Silmaril, is used to help defeat Shelob. Right. The daughter of Ungoliant. Who ate all the light. Yeah, because before the light was in the Silmarils, it was in the two trees, which she des- Ungoliant destroyed. Right. And poisoned. And so after that, the light only existed in the Silmarils. Mm-hmm. And so for now, that light to be used to defeat Shelob, I think, is very interesting. Also, in earlier versions of the lore, Eärendil, during his many journeyings while trying to find Valinor, he went to the south and he found Ungoliant and killed her. Okay. This is just so one of these things Arendil's that... light. Yeah, yeah this is yeah. one of these uh, things that Tolkien does, kind of these patterns echoing down throughout the years. The light of Eärendil helping to defeat the child of Ungoliant. And also um, just thinking about the... the... Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, what were you going to say? And also just thinking about the fact that, you know, the Silmarillion was the work that he wanted to publish. Right. (laughs) And then they were like, no, (laughs) Uh, absolutely not. And um, so I I think part of the reason we see, you know, I, of course, he writes in a cyclical manner. He is intending to create these patterns in in his history. Um, But at the same time, He's also a writer just trying to get his cool ideas out yeah. there. <laughs> and uh, and The Lord of the Rings was the way he got the Silmarillion published. Yeah. And and honestly, like this more than any other moment to me feels like this connects the story of The Lord of the Rings to the Silmarillion. Yeah. Like like what Sam was saying. The, totally. The, the tale is still going on. Yeah. The light of the Silmarils is still at play fighting the evil of the main servant of Morgoth, Sauron. Absolutely. So yeah. it's like, we're just wrapping up loose ends from the Silmarillion here still. Ages later. Yeah, I think that could be said about the entire series where it's yeah. just like, I mean, we'll talk about this so much more when we read the, the Silmarillion, but 
just the idea of, you know, how these beautiful smithed creations cause so much treachery that kind of imbues the lives of elves with greed (laughs) that they've never known before and um, war and murder that they've never known before that point um, that eventually kind of lead to Sauron being able to entrance them with their with the rings Um, yeah it's all you know it's really interesting we do talk about how like the Silmarillion was like well if I can't get my Silmarillion published I will make as many references as possible in this other story (laughs) yeah but at the same time through that the lord of the rings does feel to me like the last chapter in the Silmarillion. absolutely yeah absolutely. so to me it's like almost a really great conclusion to that story with hinting that like it's this is still going to go on these patterns are going to continue on down through the ages evil will always exist on some level and good and it's all diminishing throughout the years, but it will still be there. Yeah, this is a weird way to put it, but it reminds me of the as above, so below kind of mythos, which is is popular in a lot of pagan, Western pagan philosophies, which is just basically like what's happening on a spiritual level is happening on a physical level and what's happening on a physical level is happening on a spiritual level. Mm-hmm. Granted, this is definitely a Catholic work. <laughs> yeah. um, I think that those types of um reflections and echoes are very common to any mythic work yeah i honestly think if you look at the whole body of work it was probably um made better by the fact that he couldn't just put out the silmarillion as he wanted to no i'd agree with that but anyway, we're getting a little yeah we're getting away from the story okay Um, probably one of the most exciting parts of the story too um sorry um so in the in the tussle, Frodo gets bitten. We don't really see that moment. Yeah, well, he eventually, like, runs off. Through the light of the... I almost said the light of the Silmaril. The light of the file. Shelob kind of backs away, but just for a little bit. And then they end up running out of the tunnel. And Frodo, once he kind of gets fresh air again, this kind of madness comes on him. And he, and he starts yeah. running for the cleft of Kirith to be free of Shelob. Um, and then this is when she issues forth from her secret side entrance and cuts him off. And Sam quite can't quite get to him because Gollum shows up and pulls him back. And they get into a little tussle. The term grapple comes to mind. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a lot of grappling. A lot of grappling in, in Lord of the Rings. Uh, yeah, and this is where... As much as Sam may have had his suspicions, this is where Gollum's treachery is absolutely exposed. And yeah. um, even he even speaks out loud because Gollum doesn't seem to have an internal monologue. Um, he can only, you know, think out loud. So he even speaks about how perhaps once like Shelob's done with Frodo, like there will still be the ring and he can yeah. he can retrieve it. So Sam has now at this point picked up the file and is holding it and he pulls out his sword and he fights Shelob. Yeah. This is one of my favorite fights in just the whole, I don't know. I love how he describes it as like never in like the world of nature has there been such like a small creature up against such a <laughs> evil beast. I think he's described as uh, coming on him like a drunken madman, mm-hmm. uh, which I love the imagery of saying, like, you know, he's not a fighter. <laughs> well, and, and all he has is his love of Frodo and a sword. And even before he goes up against Shelob, he 
flips and turns on Gollum with a speed that is like like he surprises Gollum. He, by how yeah, he, he flip. You know, Gollum is expecting just like this fat, <laughs> idiotic Hobbit to like not respond to him. Sam is immediately like there and ready to fight in a way that he's never been before, yeah. um, and that just continues when he he goes and faces Shelob. Yeah. I don't know if it's like net that we've never seen before. It reminds me actually a lot of when the watcher in the water outside of Moria grabs Frodo. Yeah. Sam is the first one yeah, there. That's that run- true. And he, and at that point he also had to make the choice to abandon Bill the pony or go after Frodo. And Bill he, the pony. he quickly is just like, nope, sorry, Bill. I have to go for Frodo. This is what it says. Fury at the treachery and desperation at the delay when his master was in deadly peril gave to Sam a sudden violence and strength that was far beyond anything that Gollum had expected from the slow, stupid hobbit as he thought him. Yeah, so he really shocks everyone in this moment. Very valiant. And I mean, this chapter is, it's named after Sam. It's the choices of Master Samwise. I just love this because even going back to the hobbit with Bilbo and Smaug, we know originally... Tolkien had it that Bilbo was going to fight and be the one to kill Smaug. But then he was like, eh, maybe that's not the role for, you know, the hobbit of the story. We'll leave that to like a man. Right. A big epic warrior. But here we have Sam fighting the daughter of this old spider demon that, I mean, is almost just pure evil. Yeah. And no one has escaped her clutches. Right. And now we have these two hobbits that uh, one has already defied her. And now this other one is like attacking her and coming at her. Again, through the file, Sam invokes these words that it's like someone else is speaking through him. Yeah, he feels the presence of Galadriel in that moment. Yeah. I also love that he's thinking about Tom Bombadil too at the moment Mm -hmm. when this comes to him. Light. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there's all these different things we can kind of draw from who's really speaking through Sam. Um, but, but he's it, killing it. It's a being of power, and and yeah, and he's killing it. Even if he doesn't kill Shelob, uh, I think this is still a very impressive feat that he fights and holds her off. And I love this part where they say that even if uh, Turin or Baron wielded it, they still would not be able to pierce her hide, not without her help. Right. And I think this, you know, I've harped a lot, especially in the Hobbit series, about evil is self defeating. And I think this is just a pure moment of that where Sam doesn't really have to do anything. And they say even if he was a mighty warrior, he couldn't do anything against her. Right. But what he does is he holds his ground underneath her and she tries to sting him. And all he has to do is withstand her evil presence and hold the sword. And she essentially pricks herself on the sword, deeply wounding herself. So again, it wasn't necessarily anything that Sam did other than just be extremely courageous. Right. And but, not back down. And isn't that like just such a big theme for the the Hobbits in general? Yeah, like, I mean, I think through all the good people in Tolkien's yeah, world in general. The concept evil, is endurance and yeah. not particular skill or, or direct action. Yeah, like, I mean, it's bravery, but it's not. Yeah, direct action is a good way of putting it. Um, yeah, it's endurance and resistance. Yeah, which is really interesting. I, I think that's... You know, very, very groovy. Very yeah. groovy, Tolkien. He's kind of just like, all you have to do is resist the evil, not give in to it, and the evil will hurt itself. Right, exactly. Um, Eventually it will pass. I've always found that fight to be very um, symbolic. Sure. Of that theme. Definitely. 
Um, I love the rest of this chapter, so let's get on to that. Yeah. The orcs. So, let's, sorry, I'm just like very preoccupied with the orcs. But Sam finds that Frodo is pretty wounded um, and is non-responsive. And he waits with him for a really long time and tries to revive him, tries to, you know, make sure... But he comes to this conclusion that he's dead. He's like, he's dead. And, you know, he realizes that it's now his grim duty to take the ring and continue on the path. As always, Sam has a great back and forth with himself as far as whether he's deserving or the right one to to be bearing the ring to its final destination. Yeah. And, um... As always, he embodies the two voices um, where he eventually is like, well, Mr. Frodo wasn't, you know, the right one in this kind of chosen one way. You know, he didn't want to do this and he was chosen and I was chosen just by being his companion on this journey. And, And that's that is what gives me the right to do this. Yeah. He's empowering himself. Like, as we've talked about before, there's a big class difference between him and Frodo. He views Frodo as this, like, god. Yeah. <laughs> and um, loves him dearly. And and uh, he's a very dear friend, but with difference in stature. This is kind of what allows him to say, okay, I'm going to, like, kiss his forehead. I'm going to take the ring and be on my unmarry way and like so far sam has just been the sidekick um he's been offering great and really hilarious commentary (laughs) totally but he's you know he's just an add-on to frodo yeah but this chapter is really when he becomes if not just a main character the main character almost you know all the way back to their conversation with gildor uh in the earlier chapters he's like i know there's something i have to do before the end and it's like he needs to be ready to step up when he has to, which is right now. Right. And um, yeah, because like Frodo is not going to be able to do this alone. So like you're going to eventually have to stop being the sidekick and become like the hero. And it's interesting, you know, I, I think in this moment, once he kind of makes up his mind of like, I am worthy of this task. It almost is like he has less of a problem than Frodo originally did. Like I, I always go back to the scene at the very end of the fellowship where Frodo's on the mountain and and thinking about what he must do now that he's realized that the ring is going to to drive apart the fellowship and he has what seems to be more trouble and maybe it's because sam had already accepted that outcome as when he decided to be frodo's companion during this leg of the journey but yeah. he's rather quick to to say and i not in any way that i'm like trying to draw attention to default him or anything like that. But Mm -hmm. I think, you know, sometimes we've talked about how the perceived simplicity of Sam is what makes him so brave and strong is that he's not necessarily worrying about every single level of every part. And he has literally no self-preservation at all. No, 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 no. So like, he's just like, okay, Frodo's dead. This is my job. Yeah, and well, I love his, like, cycling through his options here. Yeah. I- I've always just loved this chapter alone. I've-, I've always thought this would make, like, a great one-person play. Um, Ooh. Oh, yes. Yeah. I love that. I That's great. Like that. Oh, my gosh. But yeah, so he's going through these options, and first he's just like, 
he's saying like fair like don't go where i can't follow and he looks at like the point of his sword he's he thinks about killing himself yeah um he quickly dismisses it but still to me that's like huge it's like sam was ready to end himself right there he's just yeah. like well the quest failed this is it we're all gonna die um but then he's like to kill yourself that's to do nothing i have to go on but at first he's not even like go on with the ring his idea of going on was a quest of vengeance to avenge frodo and yeah kill Gollum. cold vengeance Oh, which I love. And we know how much he hated Gollum. And now it's like he feels vindicated. Let me be real. That's the action movie I want. It's like Samwise on a... Yeah, it's like uh, the film. orcs come and find the ring and Sauron gets the ring back and everyone's fucked. But He's like, just like John Wick after But that. Sam is out hunting down Gollum in yeah. this apocalyptic wasteland. <laughs> yeah. That's the only thing that matters to him. Yeah. But then he's just like, well, that doesn't help anyone. And like you said, he's like, am I worthy of this? And he finally comes to the conclusion. He's like, there's only one thing to do. And I do think that does help with the burden being lighter. Um, I think literally not having any other options. Right. At the point that Frodo has to make that decision, he has a lot of different options. Which I'd say is another um, big point of Tolkien's. We see whenever our characters are backed into a corner, they're at their like almost like last breath things almost become easier for yeah, them. Yeah, they they make the best decisions in those moments. Or that's honestly. when their bravery, their resilience really comes out. It's yeah. because like there's literally nothing else you can do. I've always really liked um that desperation. Yeah, that's almost leads a leads to cl- a clarity. And as someone can... that procrastinates a lot, I identify <laughs> with like when it gets down to the last moment, it's like, well, there's only one thing to do, so like I do my best work under pressure. Post your blogs. Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll get there. (laughs) Um, Okay, so anyhow, he eventually decides, you know, I'm going to kiss him on the forehead. I'm going to take the ring and be on my unmerry way. And if I can ever make it back here, I I will will come back back to Frodo's body. As soon as I'm done. But then he has to hide. The orcs are coming. The orcs are coming. And let me be real. Uh, Unpopular take. My orcs are my favorite character. I love whenever the orcs I fucking love the orcs. Because guess what, people? You out there, you working stiffs, just like me and William, we are the orcs. Yeah, exactly. We're not, we're not, you know, as much as we might think, oh, I'm Aragorn, oh, I'm Bilbo, I'm Frodo, I'm Sam, I'm Legolas, I'm, you know, even if you're like, I'm Gollum. No, we're the fucking orcs. We're Shagrat and Gorbag. Yes, like, (laughs) absolutely. Can I just say... Or Grishnak and Ugluk. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) These orcs come, they they discover Frodo's body, and they realize he's he's alive, Um, which Sam is like, he's immediately like, oh, Sam, you fucking idiot, like... But if Sam didn't think Frodo was dead, he never would have taken the ring. Exactly. And they would have gotten the ring. So That split second changed everything. Exactly, and... Um, but he, he does note in himself that the reason you thought he was dead was because you lost hope in that moment. And, um, I think that's an important little, little self-reflection for him. Never lose hope. Like it's all good. So then after this point, as his gaffer says, where there's life, there's hope. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And Frodo's actually alive. He's alive. Uh, so at this point he decides I'm going to follow these orcs who now have Frodo and I'm going to, I just need to get Frodo back because he's alive. But through this, we hear, I think, one of the most interesting conversations between orcs during this scene. Uh, yeah, so you have um, Shagrat, who is seems to be the commander of Kirith, the Tower of Kirith Ungol. And he's definitely more like closer to in communication with Barad-dor and Sauron. 
And then you have Gorbag, who's from Minas Morgul and directly serves under the Witch King. My favorite thing that we glean from this conversation is, and you've mentioned this before, that the, the orcs aren't following their leadership, as in Sauron, um, because they respect him or believe in his thing. No. It's purely out of fear. It's all fear. It's all fear. And something that I love that we really hear in this moment, I think this is something totally missing from the movie. Even though we do get um, some conversations between orcs, in in the Peter Jackson movies, they don't feel very human and they don't feel very connected to just like worldly things. They're just like monsters. Yeah, these guys um, feel like manipulated working class people. Absolutely. <laughs> so they're basically just like, wouldn't it be great to just like leave all this shit behind and like Oh yeah, I love just like, like when the this old war's days, over, like they're like, let's you know, set up some place. Let's set up a little like operation of just orcs like living out. And it, it's and just enough, like, I, I think they're talking about like raiding people still. Sure. But, sure. Um, but like it just to me I related hard just because you and I are very interested in in farming and like living a bit off the grid, you know, and, and just not being super attached to having jobs and stuff like that. And, and I mean, as a millennial, I think that's a pretty common goal, desire, dream, fantasy, whatever. And here we have these two orcs who are just like, you know what? Fuck all these monsters. Like literally, I know we're gruesome, but like, fuck fuck this like fuck dealing with this giant spider fuck dealing with yeah. sauron i like don't want any of well, this shit anymore. and i love how sauron so says that like he's aware of shelop and he's like better her there to keep people out and i know i need to have some of my troops go up and down from minas morgul up to kirathungal uh but whatever i can spare them like he's like he's happy to let send a few of his orcs to shelop to keep her happy right and so these guys their job is, like, literally working next to Shelob. Right. And they have a master that doesn't really care about them. Yeah, they're, they're clearly and they're like, just fodder. Exactly. Yeah. And they're just, like... Uh, and I love how um, they acknowledge that they're, like, even the big bosses can make mistakes. Yeah. And so, yeah, we see that they're not just these mindless, like, Sauron knows all. He is the god. Right. They're just, like, something went wrong. I think something slipped through the uh, border and... You know, sometimes I question if these guys know what the hell they're doing. <laughs> yeah. They, Which they, anyone who's worked, like, any job with, like, terrible management right. knows. Like, yeah. If anyone has watched the Bakshi masterpiece of Wizards, um, there's tons of scenes with the kind of orc equivalent in yeah, that Yeah, like, there's two soldiers talking. Yeah, um, there's always, like, two or three soldiers so talking. True. Um, who work for kind of the dark side of the fairies and and it's always comedic but it is always like very relatable as far as someone (laughs) like if you've ever worked any job so i've always loved this part it goes it's a little bit but it goes a long way to humanize the orcs their humanity has been debased because of their job yeah (laughs) um, yeah and their uh bosses right um yeah so it's you still see that glimmer of like oh these people were once elves (laughs) like yeah um, and and just that they they like long for something that's like more free whether that's like a good or bad thing you know but like their current existence is not the existence that they long for and i think that's very interesting yeah and and tolkien went back and forth a lot about the nature of orcs i think originally they were very much just this um 
extension of Morgoth that he created from stones, kind of like how they talk about like uh, trolls were made trolls, from stone, yeah. um, and that they didn't really have any free will of their own. They were almost just like parroting the will of Morgoth. But then I think he also started to write himself into a corner with like, oh, they were corrupted it's elves. It's really hard to do that. And yep. if elves all have a soul, like, are do orcs have souls? Can orcs be redeemed? Do orcs' souls pass on after they die, similar to elves? <laughs> so, like, yeah, he, he got yeah. into all these, like, kind of theological uh, traps that he wrote totally. himself into with orcs that he never really quite resolved. But well, I think he was moving away from them being just mindless people into more of a just corrupted being. Well, and I was going to say that this section reminds me a lot of the goblins in The Hobbit. Yeah. Which, of course, are the orcs of the Misty Mountains. And where it's just like, oh, they have their own thing. <laughs> like, yeah. they have their own society and culture and desires and, and will that is separate from all the evil shit that's going down. Yeah. We even saw that in the uh, last book with, um, you know, we had the Mordor orcs, the Isengard orcs. Totally. And then the Misty Mountain orcs, which were just like, hey, we just came to, like, pillage and plunder. <laughs> yeah. We want to go back home now. Yeah, um, like, this sucks. Fuck all this running in the sun. <laughs> this is like, horrible. Um, we are untrained. <laughs> Let me be real. Me as a trashy fiction girl who just loves gray characters and, you know, monster characters who are actually compelling at heart this is a moment for the orcs that i'm just like man i want a whole book about that like just what is it to be like a total fucking drone who realizes like shit working for the most evil guy is like my only option but like i'd really just like to go and like fuck shit up in the wild (laughs) you know like i just i i I love it uh i think it's funny i'm trying to think of an amazon worker analogy here yeah, but it's it's there somewhere. <laughs> Jeff, yeah. Jeff Bezos, Sauron. I know that's low hanging fruit, but I um, mean, hey, better watch out. We're doing part of this on on his show. Are you are you just trying to virtue signal to all the people who are going to call you a a shill a shill when you like the show? Yeah, best get out ahead of that. <laughs> <laughs> um. So this section ends. I mean, this book ends. The whole book ends, yeah. Um, they they take Frodo up their secret passageway into this kind of underway into the Tower of Kirith Ungol, but Sam is locked out. This is probably one of my favorite last sentences in it's a book so good. ever. It is so good. Frodo was alive, but taken by the enemy. Perfect. End. Best cliffhanger and Sam actually runs into the door no, and knocks like, himself he's out. He's so close. And then it's like the door shuts right when he... Yeah. Yeah. I loved the ending of this. I thought it was a great exclamation point. Like I said, on the, the end this, of this climax book. to me is like, oh, it's, it's so good. Next week, moving on to a whole new book. We are at The Return of the King. We're going to catch back up with Pippin. We'll be reading from Chapter 1, Minas Tirith, to Chapter 5, The Ride of the Rohirrim. If you haven't already, please follow us on our Twitter at halfaswellpod. Or you can check us out on halfaswellpodcast.com. Also, subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half Half As As Well. Well.